You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Hi, and it's uh, Friday the 9th of October. Hey, Kevin. I really like the way you do that. I feel like you're our human date stamp. <laughs> it's the only time of the week that I actually look at what the date is, so it, it helps me. But uh, uh, it's been a pretty interesting week. We've had budgets. We've had all sorts of stuff going on. Yeah, the Morrison government's been very busy. And amongst the many things they had to do was they just had to follow through with their need to lower the JobKeeper and JobSeeker payments. On September the 25th, we saw them take... $300 a fortnight off the unemployed. Yeah. That puts the unemployment rate back below the poverty line. For a single person, if that's $1,100, your unemployed worker is now getting $800 a fortnight, which equates to about $58 a day compared with the pre-pandemic levels of $40 a day. It's interesting how it's a supplement. So that means they never incorporated it into the unemployment benefit as such, which makes it a lot easier to roll back. What do you reckon the logic is behind this? They say that there's a a COVID supplement. For some reason, while COVID's around, you need more money if you're unemployed. But then when COVID's not around, apparently you don't need that money anymore. (laughs) There's no logic behind that really, is there? Not when you look at it closely. And it's pretty scary that they're signalling that they want to roll it back completely next year. So, you know, I've heard people saying lately that the Morrison government, because it's doing all this spending in relation to the pandemic, that they're behaving more like what they call Keynesian economists in that they're willing to do a bit of government spending. But judge them by their actions, I say. It's a question of how they inject currency into the economy and they're sticking by the ideology. The government knows that they have to spend to steer the economy through this crisis but it's where they spend and who they give the money to. Right. All of these injections into infrastructure and big building programs are spending another $50 billion. But at the same time they're doing that, they're reducing tax for the wealthy, they're screwing down on job seeker, they're winding back job keeper, and I'm just waiting to see how much of the recovery ends up being shoved to the top end of town while they still screw the bottom end of town. Mm -hmm. They're saying that they are fiscally supporting the recovery and you can see that their ideology is going to interfere with this process. I like that way of thinking of it. I think it's Keynesianism with a lot of interference. (laughs) Yeah, well, just as an aside, I'm learning that the Keynesian model that was adopted post-World War II is often referred to as the Fordist Keynesian model. Oh, okay. So the Fordist Keynesian model is regarded as something of a compromised Keynesian ideal because as we're speaking to Ed Cooper in the last show, he was talking about how back in the 30s they were talking about efficiencies that should lead to more leisure time and that we should be working 15 hours a week. Whatever happened to the leisure dividend? Well, Henry Ford's production line meant that people could become more and more productive and so that whole idea of transferring work to leisure with efficiencies got turned into work for more productivity and people just working harder and harder. So the Carl Keynesian thing was diluted and that's where we find ourselves now. We, we have an opportunity to, to implement maybe some more pure Keynesian uh, ideologies, but this government's not going to do it and I am watching it. <laughs> Got my eye on it there. I want to see what they do. Yeah, we'll keep an eagle eye on these guys. <laughs> And the thing that I didn't see coming, on the very same day that they reduced the job seeker, job keeper payments, they also made changes to the lending laws that the banks have to abide by. Oh, this is a beauty. These laws were put in place after the GFC to control how banks lend money to people. So now the laws have changed so that banks are going to be able to lend to people who really shouldn't be taking out those loans. So at the same time that they're pushing people into poverty, they're also allowing easier access to credit. What kind of an economic recovery strategy is that? (laughs) We have an economy which has the second highest level of debt in the uh, developed world. Household debt, not government debt. Government debt, we don't care about government debt. Government debt is a myth. (laughs) If you haven't haven't figured it out, go and read Stephanie Kelton's book. She'll explain it to you. 
So what they're saying is we've just had a banking royal commission, which arose from the fact that there were too many dodgy loans going out. And when the banks make dodgy loans, they don't wear the costs. They go and hit the customer. They say, Rodeo, here, we'll lend you this money. We're really not quite sure whether you're going to be able to pay it back. But if you can, we're going to make money. And if you can't, well, we're going to take your property. We're always going to win. What's the Morrison's government solution to how to get out of this? More dodgy loans. And this is a move you could only make if you believe that markets will lead the way to recovery and government should be spending as little as possible. And just straight after we've had a Banking Royal Commission saying, don't do it. <laughs> so one way of understanding uh, what's going on with how they think we need to do our recovery, is it going to be via the banks and via lending and via credit or is it going to be via government spending, is to understand how your monetary system works. And we were very fortunate that Dr. Stephen Hale, who is very busy running around explaining all this stuff to people at the moment, he had a chat with us and explained the two main ways that money gets created. This um, actually does my head in a bit, so I'll be very interested to hear what Stephen Hale's got to say. Let's have a listen. Well, hello, Dr. Stephen Hale, and welcome back to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Steve, how are you doing? Hello, Anne, and hello, Kev. Nice to be here. Stephen, I just want to remind everyone that you are a lecturer at the School of Economics at the University of Adelaide, and you are a scholar at the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. The last time we talked, that was back in April, and we got a little bit distracted because the, the lockdowns had just come in and we were looking at the impact of those on the economy. But today I was wanting to get back to basics and it's partly for my own sake because as an interested amateur as I go on this adventure into macroeconomics, I do find sometimes that it's a bit like a slippery fish and <laughs> just when I think I've got a grip on it, it's sort of it's gone again. I'm not Stephanie Kelton or Bill Mitchell, so I'll do my best. Everything you say will be recorded and used against you, so that's all good. Yep. <laughs> So the basics that I wanted to get back to today was this question of how is money created? Like where does money come from? Mm. You know, one of the things that's really astounded me as I start to learn about macroeconomics that there are actually different kinds of money whizzing around in the economy because I guess there's this idea that money comes into existence when governments spend and it also comes into existence when banks lend. So the market is also creating a kind of money as well as the government creating money. So I was wondering, what's this process whereby banks are creating money? Tell me what money is. What do you think? <laughs> we can do the reverse interview here. I'm only saying because there is no general agreement on what money is. Oh, okay. It's, uh, it's one of <laughs> No wonder I don't know what money is. <laughs> I guess the way I've started is I've started to think of money primarily as an IOU. So there's an I, there's a relationship, and there's a U. There's two parties involved. And they're doing something together. And what they're doing is they're creating an obligation or what in the economic world would be called a debt. Yeah. So I think of money as a relationship between two parties and that that relationship has kind of become formalised in, in the legal world. And I guess what I've started to think about is that this debt relationship is happening in two main ways. And one way is if the government does this creation of money, it is creating money and putting it into the economy as currency without a necessary obligation that it will be paid back. It may or may not be taxed back, but there's no obligation that it'll have to be paid back. How, how could you even pay it back? What would you pay it back with? I wouldn't have anything until... Oh, I, yeah, so, so money doesn't exist until the government spends it into existence but then there's also this other process that goes on which is that banks can bring money into existence but the difference is that that money has to be paid back so it's going to be sort of extinguished at some point whereas the government money could just sit there indefinitely. Well let, let's start with the concept of a currency and the government being the currency issuer and they've decided we're going to have a currency called the Australian dollar. The government sits at the top 
of our monetary hierarchy at the top of our financial system. The government buys some stuff, having previously ensured that there would be a demand for that currency by creating taxes that people are going to have to pay in the future in that currency, which means people need to get that currency. And its agent, the Reserve Bank of Australia, spends some of those dollars into the monetary system, creates some currency on behalf of the government. The government could choose to sell the private sector some things called bonds, which allow the private sector to hold that currency in a somewhat different form. If they choose to convert into government bonds, then they're going to get a better interest rate than they would have got if they'd held on to the currency. So far, the only money in the system is money that government has spent into the system. And you're right, the government can just leave that money in the system indefinitely. It's money that the government has spent into the system and not withdrawn from the system yet. People will call it the government's debt or sometimes the national debt, but I often call it the net money supply. This has been created by the currency issuer. The currency issuer is at the top of the monetary system. Okay. Now, um, there's nothing to stop institutions outside the government from writing IOUs, where that IOU is denominated in the currency that the government has issued, where they obtain goods and services from somebody else and promise to pay for those goods and services at some point in the future. That's an IOU. If the people writing those IOUs are well-respected and have a very good reputation in the community, then you could imagine those IOUs being treated by people as money as well. But they're a different form of money. They're further down the monetary pyramid or the monetary hierarchy, and people are only accepting them as money because they are confident that they can be converted into the government's currency. Hyman Minsky, a long time ago, said anyone can create money. Mm -hmm. The problem lies in getting it accepted. Now, we have created privileged institutions, and those institutions are what in Australia we call authorised deposit-taking institutions. Those authorised deposit-taking institutions are able to issue IOUs which we regard as money, and so which are included in every measure of the money supply except something called the monetary base that only includes government currency. Virtually all of what's included in broad measures of the money supply, like M3, is our deposits with banks and other authorised deposit-taking institutions. And all that those deposits are, are IOUs of those banks and other authorised deposit-taking institutions. If I went to my bank, Bendigo Bank, would they have to look in their vaults to make sure they've got $20,000 that they can lend me? No, they wouldn't. You'd just have to sign a loan. How are those deposit liabilities created? Anne goes into the Bendigo Bank and takes out a loan. When you do that, you are exchanging an IOU with Bendigo Bank. You're giving Bendigo Bank your IOU, which doesn't have the status of money. It's just a loan agreement that you've signed. Bendigo Bank doesn't normally try to exchange a loan agreement for goods and services with somebody else. Mm -hmm. But the deposit which has been created for you at Bendigo Bank, that is now part of the money supply because when you spend those funds, the Bendigo Bank will need to have reserves at the RBA on which it can draw. Right. This is only possible because Bendigo Bank and the other banks have guaranteed access to government currency in the form of electronic balances that they hold at the government's agent, the Reserve Bank of Australia. But the Bendigo Bank does not need reserves before it makes the loan to you. It will need the reserves later on when you spend those funds, but it can always find those reserves 
And it's the job of the RBA to make sure that there are always sufficient reserves in the banking system. So the dollars in your bank account have value and are part of the money supply because there is a guarantee that they can be converted into government money. Oh, okay. And what this means, to go back to where you started with the conversation, is that in practice, although there's really only one form of money out there, there are two ways in which that money can be created. One is that it can be spent into the system by our monetary sovereign government. And the other one is that it can be borrowed into existence by the rest of us. We're talking now about two ways money can be created. That seems to me a really fundamental distinction to understand. And so what's the situation in Australia? Like what's the ratio of those two different ways that money is being created in the economy now? When people talk about the money supply, they're generally talking about something called M3. Right. When you look at a broad measure of the money supply like M3, well over 90% of it is those deposit liabilities, those IOUs that banks and ADIs have to us, which have, in the majority of cases, been created as a result of you or me or a small business or, for that matter, a state government taking out a loan. Uh, This is something which has been interesting me for quite some time is I've been trying to figure out what percentage of the currency base is M0 or government-created currency and how much how much is in the private banking system. You're saying it's about 10% M0 currency, roughly? The monetary base at the moment is about $160 billion. And the M3 money supply, I haven't got that written down here, but it'd be about $2.3 billion. So it's less than 10%. But that doesn't matter. Because the treasury bonds the government has issued, total treasury bonds that are out there is $730 billion. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at the M3 money supply, almost all of it is in the form of bank deposits. But that's a little bit misleading because government net spending balanced out through the sale of government bonds, when those bonds are purchased uh, by investors who are not themselves part of the banking system, it reduces the M3 measure of the money supply. It doesn't reduce what I would regard as money. Government bonds are not included in the way the RBA officially measures the money supply. Mm -hmm. So it distorts things and it makes people imagine that the admittedly very important credit creation by private banks is the overwhelmingly important part of the story when it isn't. So if if you add the uh, the monetary base and government bonds, is that larger than the private banking sector created currency? No, but I think it's reasonable to say indirectly maybe 60% of it's created through bank lending and 40% through deficit spending by the government at the moment. But somebody could come along and point out that uh, only 3 or 4% of it is physical currency and the other 97% of it, the way we measure it, is bank deposits. And if I'm going to try and, try and explain why I'd still say that 40% of it is basically created through deficit spending, we start having to talk about bond issuance. Mm-hmm. So that's a, going back again to the issue of uh, what to include in a measure of the money supply. There's no general agreement on what money is. Keynes wrote in a footnote in the general theory, a, an interesting question was where to draw the line between what you call money and what you call debt. And he said, there's, there's no correct answer to that. You just need to do it in whatever way is convenient. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Dr. Stephen Hale talks about a hierarchy of money. So these different kinds of money sit in relation to each other in this hierarchy, kind of like a hierarchy of IOUs. For example, if I wrote on a bit of paper and I said, I owe Kevin one beer, I've just created an IOU denominated in beers. If I was to write an IOU to Kevin that says, I owe you $20, now I've written an IOU denominated in dollars. And the only reason I can do that is because dollars already exist. Someone's already gone and made the currency, and that would be the federal government. 
Now, if Kevin put that IOU in his pocket and he walks out and he goes to his van and he's loading equipment into his van and a guy walks past and Kevin says, hey, can you help me load my equipment into the van? And the guy says, well, that'll cost you $20, mate. And Kevin pulls out the IOU from his pocket and says, well, can you take this in payment? And the guy says, oh, sure. At that point, the IOU has become money because now Kevin's been able to trade that IOU for goods and services. But it's very unlikely that someone would accept my bit of paper that says I owe Kevin $20 in payment for something. But there are institutions that can do that and that are authorised to do that. And we call them banks. Uh, They're known in the industry as authorised deposit-taking institutions. So that's how you get your hierarchy. At the top sits the government's currency. The next step down are the IOUs that the banks can write. And then there's the rest of us who can write IOUs. Yeah, so one of the things to note about what Stephen was saying is that in both cases, whenever the government is creating money or whether the banks are creating money, they're doing the same thing. They're doing it in the same way, which is they're creating it mostly by doing this, which is they're just typing on keyboards. (laughs) So that's what they call fiat money. In other words, it's not like they're going and creating little gold coins or anything. But, of course, each way has a limit. You can't just do do this unlimited typing on keyboards. So that's why we always say they're not just printing money. I've just been reading about how in 1971 when Nixon abandoned the gold standard for the US dollar. I'm reading this in that Reclaiming the State. And it occurred to me how audacious a move that was because essentially what had happened there is that up until that point, every US dollar that was created was backed by an amount of gold. And the US were buying goods from overseas, they're buying it from Japan, from Europe, Germany, China. And so they're flooding the international market with US dollars and receiving all the goods from those nations back. So they're getting all the good stuff and all these nations are getting the currency. But the nations began to get a little bit worried that the US didn't have the gold to back the currency that they were sending them. What was lying there in Fort Knox? (laughs) We need to know. They're sort of going, hang on, we've got these dollars, they're supposed to be with gold. You know what, we're going to start sending you the money back and we're going to take the gold (laughs) because the gold is gold and, and the piece of paper is a piece of paper. And the US actually were having trouble getting the gold to back their currency. Right. So Nixon said okay, you know what, we're going to stop backing the dollar with gold. We're just going to back it with US Treasury bonds. So then you've got all these nations sitting there with large amounts of US dollars. They either accept that and buy the bonds, which gives them value, or they reject it, which means all the US currency they have is now worth nothing. They have to accept the US withdrawing the gold support. Otherwise, the value of what they've got would go down. I think that's just such an audacious thing to do. What a great move. Yeah. All the ways that money works, it's just this fascinating story. And one of the things Stephen Hale was trying to point out was it doesn't matter how much is in the money supply, which means it doesn't matter how much is being spent. It's just a number. But it's all about how the money is spent. So creating money does not in itself lead to good things like, you know, universal health care. But it also doesn't necessarily lead to bad things like inflation. It all comes down to the details on how the money is spent. Yeah, how it's created and where it goes. We've got uh, a lot of things happening with the COVID pandemic. We're seeing a lot of shortfalls in the privatisation of things like uh, quarantine control and aged care. And that's where we had over 700 deaths. The virus just ripped through the aged care facilities because they were not geared for for this sort of thing because it had been stripped right back. And that was a federal responsibility because they privatised the aged care system. And the care goes out the door because when you privatise something, it becomes profit-driven. And this is where we need to look at our institutions and say, should these be privately run for profit or should these be in public hands and we spend the money that's required to make sure that they work properly? Yeah, so privatisation is like a core tenant of neoliberal ideology. It's farming out services to the private sector to provide under this pretense that the government doesn't have enough money to fund it to do it itself. (laughs) Always comes back to the deficit myth. And if you're not scared about deficits, it opens up so much fiscal space and you can improve things. So let's get back to Dr. Hale describing the two different kinds of money creation. The simple idea Anne started with is exactly right. 
there are two sources of the ability to spend in our economy. One of them is deficit spending by the government. The other is growing private credit. Thing with growing private credit is you reach a point where the private sector can't take on any more debt. Now, the first of those, as you quite rightly said, is the way of creating that money, which is sustainable because the government is the currency issuer. It's not creating a debt which it has to repay in a meaningful sense. As we were saying, it offers us the opportunity to convert that currency that's created into government bonds, which in a sense the government repays, but they only convert those government bonds back into the currency. They can't run out of the currency. So that's why I say that the government's outstanding debt, the dollars the government spent into the system are not yet taxed back out, are best thought of as the net money supply. The number of times I've written under a Twitter comment from some famous neoclassical economist, how exactly would a government financial crisis happen in a country like Australia? And they don't really have an answer to that question because it is, in fact, impossible. (laughs) There can't be a solvency problem in Australia. The government can't run out of dollars. Households can. Right. Well, the other way of supporting spending in the economy and increasing the money supply over time involves people like you and me and businesses borrowing the money into existence. Well, that does have to be paid back. Mm -hmm. And if we rely on the growth of private sector debt in order to create the money necessary to support the economy over time, then we end up with what Hyman Minsky called a fragile financial system one where some of the individuals and perhaps some of the businesses have seen the debt that they've taken on grow to a point where it's unsustainable and then where a relatively small downturn, uh, an increase in unemployment, the withdrawal of fiscal support by the government during a pandemic, (laughs) uh, the end of a system where mortgage payments are being delayed could potentially create a series of defaults and losses in the banking system and a situation where um, the the government might be faced with rescuing the banking system. Mm -hmm. We have had down the years an inappropriate reliance on private debt and not enough reliance on uh, fiscal deficits. Government deficit spending never has to be repaid. That's the difference between them. When you say that household debt is a problem, and it's a problem because it's increasing the fragility of the economy, this household debt, that's essentially money that's being created through this banking IOU system. That's right. And when you say we need more fiscal deficits, what you're saying is we need more money that's created by the government as currency. Yes, absolutely. It's it's what you were saying earlier. There's two ways of creating money, and we have relied disproportionately on private debt. Now, the problem with that private debt is you have to pay it back. My name's Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle, and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3CR. So I've got a bunch of questions that I think actually arise from misunderstanding the fact that there are different types of IOUs and therefore Hmm. different kinds of money. Hmm. This is my all-time favourite one. If banks create money, why do they need to go to the government to get bailed out? Why don't they just make the money and bail themselves out? (laughs) Okay. Banks are licensed to create money, mainly by lending to us. But their ability to do that depends, first of all, on the fact that they have access to reserves at the RBA. And secondly, their ability to do that is constrained by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, or APRA. The RBA used to do that, but for the last 20 years or so, it's been a separate institution. And if they become what APRA would describe as insolvent, which means they ever have negative net assets, or to put it another way, if they 
create loans which people don't repay, then under the legislation, they're supposed to be closed down. Mm -hmm. They can create deposit liabilities for themselves, IOUs for themselves, which are included in the money supply, but they then have to make good on those IOUs. They have to have reserves at the RBA. If they don't have reserves at the RBA, they have to borrow them from someone, Mm -hmm. and they won't be able to do that if they're insolvent. What you often hear with MMT is that the Australian federal government as a currency issuer has a monopoly on the creation of money. And yet, we've just discovered banks also create money. So how can we be saying that the government has a monopoly on the creation of money? We don't. We say the government has a monopoly on the creation of currency. Aha! That's the distinction. They have a monopoly on the creation of what's sometimes called the monetary base. The monetary base is physical currency. Well, nobody else can can create that or they get put in prison. And it also includes the reserves that our authorised deposit takers, our banks, have at the RBA itself. Now, those reserves can only be created as a result of the government spending them into existence or the RBA lending them into existence. Mm -hmm. And the whole system depends on those reserves. It's only because your bank has access to those reserves that your bank can operate as a bank and accept deposits anyway. People say, well... MMT talks about currency issuers and currency users. So the Australian Federal Government would be the currency issuer. You and I are the users. Mm. But then what are banks by these categories? Are they a user or an issuer? They're a user. They can't issue currency and they can't increase the monetary base. They're in a privileged position compared to you and me because of their relationship with the RBA. But money is just an IOU which is exchange for goods and services. And this is one reason why these notions that people sometimes have about banning the private creation of money is actually an impossible thing to do. (laughs) You'd have to ban anybody ever giving anyone credit in order to ban the private creation of money. You mean I couldn't offer to buy Kevin a beer for doing me a (laughs) favour? Well, you wouldn't be able to sign an IOU for $5 or something because hey, somebody might then swap that for a beer. Unless you're going to make that illegal, you can't make private money creation illegal. You wouldn't be able to run a tab at the bar. Maybe not. And what we've got basically is we've got a situation where the great majority of private money creation we have regulated and supervised. You then have to look at how you regulate and supervise it. Uh, You could even, as Bill Mitchell recommends you could even nationalise the banking system. But there'd still be nothing stopping Anne or a big company like Apple issuing IOUs, which people then might choose to use in exchange for goods and services. You still wouldn't have banned private money creation. What about going the other way? Like, would it be possible to run an economy purely on bank-created money, on bank IOUs, and ditch the government currency? I suppose it's possible to imagine theoretically, but I don't know of any historical examples. Every successful currency system, at least at its inception, has had a strong central government collecting taxes in that currency. The tax collection, of course, creates the demand for the currency in the first place. Mm -hmm. And of course, a problem with the euro is it's an attempt to set up a currency without a strong central government. At most modern monetary theory, economists think the euro was a terrible idea, Mm -hmm. basically because there is no tax collecting, currency issuing federal government at its centre sitting above the European Central Bank. So in this monetary pyramid, and if we think of, say, the government currency being, I'd guess, anywhere between 10 to 40% and then the the bulk of money being this bank-created credit, Mm. does that mean that banks have some kind of undue influence over the allocation of resources if we're thinking that the function of money is pretty much to move resources around? So does that mean that with this commercial bank money we're giving banks an undue say over what the activity in the economy is? Well, we are now. We've allowed our banking system to be dominated by very, very large institutions, which therefore have a great deal of political power. Mm. When you look at the um, academic research, there is no evidence that there are huge economies of scale in banking. 
we really don't need the Commonwealth Bank to be as big as it is. You don't need NAB to be as big as it is. They're not more efficient as a result. So you could just break them up into smaller institutions. Mm. If a bank, to use a sort of Bernie Sanders language, if a bank is too big to fail, it's too big to exist. We have perfectly efficient small banks now, many of which are called credit unions. They are banks. I mean, we've created all this. It's been part of a neoliberal movement over the last 40 years. Right. We built a super system where everybody's superannuation depends on the stock market. The stock market depends on the profitability of the banks. Mm. Nobody, including the Labour Party, uh, feels able to do anything. And even after the Banking Royal Commission, there have been no fundamental reforms. There's no proposals to break up the big banks. There's no proposals to regulate them in such a way that they concentrate on the capital development of the economy and more on lending to small business and less on uh, lending for speculative purposes. Right. There's been no movement to stopping banks lending against financial assets like shares as collateral so that less of what they do feeds into asset bubbles. There's a whole series of things that it would be good to do which we don't do basically because the banks are so powerful because they are four of the six biggest companies in the country. Mm-hmm. We would be better off to have a less concentrated banking system with smaller banks, mm-hmm. to have a public banking option, as we used to do, and to have a much more tightly regulated banking system, which we also used to do. I think that the RBA or some other institution should be influencing banks in the way that they used to do it, used to be called moral suasion, uh, towards lending for uh, renewables and for sustainable investments. We used to have a state bank in Victoria and the Commonwealth Bank used to be owned by by the government. Uh, What was the problem with that? There was no problem with that. Back in the 1950s, the private banks complained that the Commonwealth Bank had an advantage because it was both the central bank and in competition with them. Now, I myself don't have a a problem with that. You don't need to nationalise the Commonwealth Bank. I mean, you could do, but you could just set up a competitor. The government could do that if it wanted to. It would just be a matter of regulation then, problem solved. Kevin, I had the strangest dream the other night. I was dreaming that Josh Frydenberg, our Australian treasurer, was talking about not just a gas-led recovery, but a credit-led recovery. Credit and its flow to the community will be absolutely critical to our economic recovery, whether it's in the housing sector, whether it's in the retail sector, whether it's in the tourism sector. And right now, we have a regulatory approach that's too complex Um, that is too costly, uh, that is overly prescriptive, that's a one-size-fits-all model. We're going to move that culture from from a lender beware to a borrower responsibility. So this is a really significant change. Mm. It'll make it easier to get credit, which is going to be critical to our COVID recovery. The banks have an inordinate amount of political power. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. So have we got the money supply figured out? I think it basically boils down to if you count bonds then the government is creating about 40% of the money. If you don't count bonds, then the government's creating about 3% of the money. The two types that we're talking about is government-created money and private bank-created money. The big, big difference between the money that the government creates and the money that the banks create is that the money that the banks create, somebody's got to pay it back. That's where you can sort of think of the economy as a bunch of interrelated IOUs. And if too many of those IOUs can't be paid back, that's when you are in danger of a recession. Or a global financial crisis, which is exactly what happened in the States back in 2008. I mean, everybody lost their houses and the banks got bailed out. And you sort of wonder. (laughs) 
So we invited Marcus Champ, who is a member of Modern Money Australia, for his take on some of these banking operations that Stephen Hale was explaining to us. So let's have a listen to Marcus. Sure. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, Marcus. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, you're most welcome. Now, I'll just let listeners know a little bit about you, Marcus. Oh, dear. <laughs> you are a social scientist by training. Yeah, a behavioral scientist, yes. A behavioral scientist. So you've had a career in organizational behavioralism. Yes. And that seems to cover things like workforce analytics and strategic workforce planning and You've plied your trade in both the private and public sector at local, state and federal levels. Yeah, that's right. One of the things that I've noticed when you meet up with people who are into heterodox economics is that I find you always want to swap your coming out story. Okay. (laughs) So do tell us, Marcus, how did you come into an interest with heterodox economics? Well, um, I mean, I've had a long interest in economics, but it's actually through behavioural science uh, that I really got a different lens on economics because from a behavioural scientist viewpoint, um, many people may not be aware of this, but in microeconomics, there's actually been a revolution with all of the cherished foundations of micro uh, around the assumptions of human behaviour basically being blown up um, by the findings of psychology. You know, things like the people being rational. Um, yeah, maximising your, what is it, your utility? <laughs> no, it's just totally untrue. It sounded like a very impoverished version of human nature when I first heard about that. It was basically the view of humans as rational robots who acted always in their self-interest. I mean, don't get me wrong, people do act in self-interest, but the, the rationality of what their self-interest is is nowhere near as uh, deterministic as the economics would like you to think. Mm -hmm. And psychology um, essentially started the field of behavioural economics and it's just sort of blossomed from there. My psychology training gave me, I would say, a a different viewpoint or lens to view that that then lay the groundwork. So as I developed my interest in the macroeconomic side of things more, I was already open to looking at the world in a different way than what the, the mainstream classic economics described. What amazes me is they continue to get it wrong and then when they get it wrong, they say, let's do more of it and let's see if it changes anything. (laughs) It's a definition of insanity, isn't it? Well, exactly. And so as I developed that interest further and and got interested in the work of people like Steve Keane, his stuff is brilliant. Uh, He's an Australian economist, isn't he? Steve Keane is a, a renowned Australian economist. Now, his work is solely funded by people across the world through Patreon, and he's the first economist to ever be essentially crowdfunded. <laughs> yeah, and he wrote a book, Debunking Economics. and um, That's what we're all about on this show is debunking the orthodox economics because once you understand how divorced from reality it is, you want to find what the alternative is. You know, we have all these different streams of heterodox economics that have all been debunking the classic view, the classic economic models that are followed by the vast majority of those in charge, they're on thin ice. There's nothing holding them up. It's it's the constant theme we've had from nearly everybody who's on this program is that the orthodox model of economics, how it's being taught, how it's being implemented is just false. Yeah, that's right. So did we get to the end of your story? 2014 or so, I came across this very interesting politician in the US called Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. And one of his main economics advisors was someone called Stephanie Kelton. Finally, he's someone who has laid it all out and it's it's so obvious. And MMT is one of those things that once you learn it, you can't unlearn it. The end of that bit of history, of course, is that uh, Kevin and I met you through Modern Money Australia. Yes, indeed. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org. As someone who's been a consultant to government and industry, and also as someone who's very interested in heterodox economics, what insights can you offer to the concerned citizen? Well, I guess the starting point is you have to realise that government's not driven by evidence. I mean, they're just not interested in that. That's that's not what drives policy. I'm shocked. <laughs> what a revelation. And, and that's probably being a little bit unfair. Evidence does drive policy in some ways. But where it really matters, it's driven by ideology. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the mainstream political politics here in this country, uh, and we're not alone, everyone has shifted to the right. 
the progressives are no longer as progressive liberals now. I mean, this is not the party of Menzies. So everyone's shifted to the right, and sadly, Labor has also shifted to the right. So the the domination of economics, to me, is a big part of it. I must admit, the perspective I've come to now is if you shift the economic paradigm, you shift the world. Right. Whether it's around the climate change or unemployment or government finances and so on, is all within this schema of the economic viewpoint or the economic model that people operate under. Some people would say, I'd like to do something about climate change, but we can't afford it. Or, you know, we need to create jobs. So if you're not thinking even beyond creating jobs other than having business or large corporations make a lot of profit to then employ people, then it's not surprising you look at the world with that lens. Uh, You have said that MMT, so that's modern monetary theory, which is one of these schools of heterodox economics, although it is descriptive of what happens, it is in its own way a revolutionary thing as well. Could you just say a little bit about in what way you think understanding MMT is revolutionary? And I think you touched on that a little bit by saying, well, first of all, it completely turns over this idea of whether it's the market or the government that is the primary player. Money started with essentially governments creating a a token to enable the harnessing of the resources of their economy. Governments created markets, not the other way around. Markets are subservient to the government. It revolutionises your worldview. It's no longer the corporations and the private sector that is supreme. It's the other way around. So governments then become the arbiters of what the economy and so on look like. The head of the RBA, Phil Lowe, came to this COVID committee at the Senate runs. Are you talking about the NCCC? Yes, that's right. They brought in the head of the RBA to talk about the economic implications of COVID. Oh, did he? Okay. This is the committee chaired by our friend Neville Power. The gas man. (laughs) The gas man. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so Philip Lowe, who is the governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia. So here's the question that was put by one of the senators. In terms of government making money available for things like JobKeeper Program, blah, 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 what's the source of your money to do that? And Mr Lowe responds, Central banks are unique entities and that they can create money. Well, we are the one entity that can create money out of nothing. That's what's incredibly important, that the governance around the process is very strong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's in black and white now. (laughs) It's in black and white. How much more obvious does it have to be? So who would benefit from everyone thinking that money grows on rich people? How does that benefit someone? Okay, so if the the narrative is that the state is, is subservient, the implication of that is, well, surely then we need to do everything we can to ensure the private sector and markets are happy. You know, if you have a certain economics viewpoint, like the monetary and Milton Friedman sort of perspective, a big driver of that is that there's not much governments can do and, and they can sort of dial a few things, but it's the market that drives everything, that the profits could trickle down economics and all the rest of it comes from the rich goes to the poor because they're the ones creating the money, they're the ones creating the jobs, and it's only through them that we can then get some wealth back through taxes to then put back into the services, etc. So it makes the government subservient to the market when the reality is it's directly the opposite. Yeah. It sort of suits the corporations to ensure that the market drives everything because then they can make the rules. Uh-huh. Whereas if government is, is understood to be the driver of them, well, their power shifts, doesn't it? Once you put together that story of money and how there's an authority that wants to provision itself, and once you put that story together with the story of democracy, then you really have a hope that we are going to be able to create an economy that operates in the public good. Because if you have the currency issuer controlled in a democratic fashion, then that to me perhaps is the revolutionary part because then you really do have the possibility of creating a, an economy that functions for the public good. So, so yes, and there's another aspect as well, which I would also argue is just as revolutionary and especially now in the world of changing climate is even more important. So part of the understanding of where money came from uh, and how economies work is it fundamentally understands the link between your natural resources, your environment, and what you can do with that. So what it means is is that MMT already accepts the notion that you need to be a custodian and care for your environment in order to be able to maximise what you can do with it. Mm -hmm. So that's a total revolution, I would argue. 
in classic economics, it's completely opposite. You you exploit your environment and, and your resources to make a profit, like digging coal. The actual costs of digging coal end up as environmental damage. Well, we haven't put a cost on that. So in effect, the environment is subsidising the production of coal. Mm -hmm. So what's happening with the gas industry is they are literally extracting public wealth into their profits Mm -hmm. and the whole country suffers. That's why I'm so looking forward to Neville Power's gas-led recovery. But anyway. There's all these people that say, oh, spending money creates inflation that destroys your economy. And yet they're totally oblivious to what's really destroying the economy, which is ruining the resources and the natural environment upon which it is based. And MMT understands that link. Yes, so perhaps one of the other revolutionary aspects is that MMT reveals who is benefiting when a resource is being mobilised and the way that resource is being mobilised and who is losing. You only have to look at the ACCC has done reports around privatisations over time and overwhelmingly found them to be bad. You privatise the profits, you socialise the losses, and we all spend more. Uh, The examples are longer than your arm. Electricity, water, uh, NBN, airports, roads, transport. So all of these public assets have been sold off a lot of times for way below their actual value to prop up supposed government finance, which wasn't necessary anyway. Imagine if we had a nationalised electricity network under one agency, so about 25% of the average electricity bill is simply made up from marketing. Roughly a quarter of your bill is just made up of that wastage. So imagine that was all gone. What I would argue is that MMT makes the two sides of that equation, the costs and benefits, clearer. Whereas at the moment, in classic economics, they don't even acknowledge that the other side of the equation even exists. What you do from that, from an ideological perspective, that's a separate thing. And MMT is agnostic in that regard. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back with Anne and Kev on 3CR. And I'm Martin Watts, Professor of Economics at Newcastle University. Uh, You did mention to me you've had some experience of being a consultant to the banking industry. And I was just wondering if you could give us a sense of of that experience and what that culture was like. Oh, look, it's fascinating, Um, especially big banks. They're just another big corporation. So they're out to make a profit. And they certainly say a lot around taking care of their customers. And I'm I'm sure they believe it on, on some level. But it depends who you mean by your customer. Uh, their customer isn't people like us. Their, their big profits and their motivation uh, comes from other sectors or other types of people the likes of us don't uh, mix very much with. <laughs> and so their worldview is fundamentally also totally shaped by their economic narrative, which they are making an awful lot of money on. So they have a vested interest to ensure that economic narrative keeps going. Do not think for a second that banks are here for us. They are not. They are another corporation who are out to make a profit and they directly financially benefit from the world continuing the way it is. So when we talk about vested interests, wanting to see the orthodox narrative in economics continue, banks would be a great example of that. Absolutely. Going back to that economic lens that most people have, there's this myth that banks lend out deposits. That's how banks work, right? So person X deposits money in the bank and then the bank goes, oh, I have this little deposit here. I can now lend it to someone. And that's sort of the common conception of how banks work. Reality is actually quite different. So when I was working at the bank, I sat with the loan people, for instance, and I said, well, how does it work? A deposit in a bank to a bank is actually a liability, whereas a loan is an asset. This is where these accounting terms, they get so confusing. (laughs) It's counterintuitive. If you put a deposit in the bank, the bank is kind of giving you an IOU and saying, we'll be custodian this money for you and we'll have to pay it back. So to a bank, that's a liability. They have to pay that. So, well, hang on, isn't a loan a liability to the bank? No, a loan is fantastic for a bank. That's an asset. When they lend you $1,000, what they're actually getting is an IOU for you that you'll pay them back. So it's now an asset. They have a uh, a contract with you that says you will give them a thousand dollars, and in the meantime, this is the interest you'll pay for the privilege. So they went through a process of deciding that I was likely to pay it back. Correct. And then and then they type the funds into your account. 
And that money didn't exist before they typed that money in. No. And it didn't come from their vaults. No. <laughs> Fundamentally, the banks can do that because they have things like reserves and legislation and protections behind them by the government. So the, the government says, we will give you a framework that allows you to print money. Mm. But they can only print money because they have that government framework behind them. If they didn't have that government framework, they would then have to get money in and only lend what they had. Mm. So MMT actually understands or describes the very framework upon which banks can do what they do. If the criticism of MMT is that it doesn't um, recognise or understand private bank credit, would it be more accurate to say that the neoliberal view that was expressed, say, by Maggie Thatcher, is that all wealth is created from the private sector and that she didn't recognise the public sector ability to create currency. And she had a best interest um, to say that uh, because it totally aligned with her ideological view and the view of her donors, I, su I suspect. I mean, I can only imagine that if you understood what was driving that, it's because she's been paid to say yeah. it, in, in effect. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a lot unfair to say that MMT doesn't account for bank-created money. And just for our listeners, we need to make sure that we're understanding the difference between a central bank which is the Reserve Bank of Australia, which is the mechanism by which the Australian government issues its currency, versus the commercial banks, which were the object of a royal commission recently. So can you just let us know how deeply it went and what terrible things it discovered as it pulled back the carpet and all the cockroaches went running? The whole thing is, is quite amazing what came out. Who wrote the terms of reference for the Banking Royal Commission? Who wrote the terms of reference? Who wrote the terms of reference? The banks wrote the terms of reference. The banks did. That's the fox writing the terms of... <laughs> so let's be very clear. The terms of reference are written by the banks. So even in the situation where the banks themselves said, this is what you're going to look at and this is what you're not going to look at, I assume because they either are totally oblivious to their own fraud or they thought, uh, we'll weather it. Everything that came out. I had some experience with the uh, Royal Commission because my girlfriend at the time was chasing the Commonwealth Bank after she had lost her house to some activities that came out of the Box Hill office of the, the CBA. The Box Hill CBA enlisted the services of a mob called Zyre Arthur and Associates. I have no problems with saying this on air because it's all been before the courts. Zyre and Arthur Associates were issued with bank forms to drum up new business to go and get loans. And uh, my girlfriend at the time was a victim of one of these uh, loans. Now, uh, Zyre Arthur enlisted a fellow called Bill Giordano, who was a professional gambler, poker player, and he would get uh, customers to sign up for these loans on dodgy property developments, which would then go south and the people would lose their deposits. Yep. And this was all done in collusion with the loans manager at the Box Hill branch of the CBA, a fellow called Brendan Epps, who's now dead, died of a brain aneurysm during the middle of this whole process. Uh, Bill Giordano's in jail for 12 years. His two partners at Zaya Arthur are in, in jail for 10 years and eight years. Yes. The Commonwealth Bank enlisted these people to drum up business for them, and they are now denying any association, saying that they are the victims uh, themselves. Oh, it's the lone wolf. It was a lone wolf. Uh, we couldn't have seen it coming. Not only could they not see it coming, they were intrinsically involved with the whole process. It couldn't yeah. have happened unless their loans manager facilitated the dodgy uh, loan documents with forged signatures that were, were made without the, the victims even knowing that the loans were occurring. In this particular instance, there was a $250,000 uh, VLOC loan in a person's name who had no idea the loan even existed. It was being administered by her boyfriend. The funds were being cleared by the bank. And then after the after the manager died, the Commonwealth Bank uh, said, uh, where's our money? She had no idea that the loan even existed. <laughs> yeah, and look, you, you read through the proceedings of the Royal Commission and there's example after example of misconduct by the banks basically for greed. And they have still to this day haven't really been brought to account for that, let alone that one of the things the Royal Commission demonstrated was that the very regulatory agencies who were providing oversight to this whole thing were at the very least asleep at the wheel. Complicit. A complicit, incompetent, however you want to put it. So the kind of story that Kevin just described, that would have come before the commission, that would have been within the terms of reference? Yeah, and there were plenty of others. There were about ten or 20,000 people uh, applied to have their stories told. 37 were listened to. The, the terms of reference for the Royal Commission, it, it was pushed by the banks because it was becoming such a hot topic. Labor was saying that they needed the Royal Commission. Uh, the coalition were fiercely resisting it. So 
Sorry, brief side note, the Greens said it first. Greens said it first. So eventually it was becoming such a distraction that the bank said, let's just have the commission, we'll write the terms of reference, we'll make it for 12 months, we'll have one commissioner, we'll listen to 37 people out of 10 or 20,000, get it out of the way, and then brush it under the carpet as quickly as you can. That was the reason they had the Royal Commission. And yeah, you're absolutely right. So there were tens of thousands of submissions, only a handful got actually heard. Having said that, the ones that got heard were not dissimilar to um, what Kev described, and they're pretty horrendous. We sat down with um, a group of politicians, uh, and a number of people told their stories. One of the worst I heard was a fellow whose wife was dying with cancer, and the bank suspended his his home loan for a few months and then said, right, yeah, well, these are three months now, start paying up again. He had to back pay the loans that he'd missed out on for the last three months and they harassed him whilst his wife died and then after his wife died, forcing him to sell his property, just just going at him like the inhumanity that they displayed was... And in some cases, they called in loans, which were totally viable. The businesses were viable. Uh, they decided, no, nope, that's it. We're, gonna, we're just going to call it in and wrapped up and totally destroyed people's lives for no real reason, just because they could. Except that some of those businesses were then unsold to people who were friends of people within the bank. That happened up in northern Queensland. There was, uh, there was a, a business which was in the rainforest area. The bank called in the loan because they reassessed the risk to cyclone to be too high. These people had just invested in expanding their environmental tourist uh, operation. They couldn't pay the loan back because they needed the business to come in to pay the loan back, but the banks just called it in, shut the business down, forced them to sell it, and then sold it at a fire sale um, price to one of the bank's mates. Somebody who had a mate in the bank picked up the property for next to nothing. It's just rife with corruption. Yeah, that's right. How would you prevent this? Like, would you say that we still need to outsource this money creation and we still need banks in markets? But what would MMT say about a more preventative approach to this craziness that can go on? MMT doesn't say much about that directly because that's not MMT's job. All it does is fundamentally describes the financial system or the monetary system. So personally, and I think the banks should be very thankful that I never become PM, (laughs) rather than the current regulatory framework that says you can't do X, Y, Z, I would create a regulatory framework that says you can do A, B, C. If you have something that says you can't do X, Y, Z, if you create something new that's not an XYZ, then you can do it even though it's against really the intent of those regulations. So what you're saying is that what MMT can tell us as a school of macroeconomic thought, it stops at where you need to then start looking at regulatory issues. That's right. And one of the regulatory things you're talking about is defining a bank in terms of what it can do. Don't define it in terms of what it can't do. Yes. The commercial arm of the bank should be decoupled from the retail side of the bank. And if the commercial bank wants to go off and do their speculation and casino uh, risk, have at it. (laughs) And then you're not given the government protections. The retail side should only focus on loans and deposits, the basic retail banking. Banking used to be boring. Banking up to 1970s was not dissimilar to what it is in uh, Mary Poppins. <laughs> you put your deposit, you get your loan. It's very basic structures, in, out, account balance sheets and all the rest of it. Then something happened uh, and the... The something that happened was called Paul Keating, I think. <laughs> um, I think personally, and this is not an MMT view, I, I would actually create a people's bank. I think there's a, a need for basic retail banking services provided at very low cost, Zero cost uh, accounts, basic loans. You have it operate quite easily out of, say, post office locations. So it's totally owned by the government and provides basic retail services. So it's just a place for you and me to deposit our money so that we don't have it under the mattress. And also it sets a, first off, a minimum standard that all banks should accept. So if the bank is ripping you off, you've got an alternative to go to. But it also sets a floor. So if they start charging exorbitant fees on your accounts, I just move my money over here. <laughs> so you could argue that what it does, it sets a minimum standard. So if the bank falls below that, well, you've got somewhere to go to. Didn't we used to have a bank like that? Wasn't it called the Commonwealth Bank of Australia? <laughs> I think it was. Um, who, who sold that off? Uh, geez, I can't quite remember. <laughs> 
Yeah, what a what a brilliant idea that was. Was that a Keating idea? I believe it was actually. Um, anyway, it's funny when you talk about Mary Poppins. I think there's two different popular conceptions of what a banker looks like, and one's the boring accountant fellow who knows everyone in the neighbourhood and gives you a friendly smile as he's walking down the street, and the other one is this shark, you know, guy in the suit who sells his grandmother. Yeah, absolutely. And Goldman Sachs's of the world have a lot to answer for. In 2008, 2007, 2008, they came very close to destroying what was then the entire global financial system. And they still haven't suffered for it. In fact, they got bailed out because, of course, the governments you could issue the currency just did that. So where you can go from an understanding of the government as the monopoly currency issuer is then what is most suitable to be left at that level of government mobilising resources? To provide a basic economic infrastructure upon which your society and business can build on. Being custodian of the monetary system, what the government should be doing is building an economy that works for everyone. Go on, Marcus. I really enjoyed this conversation, Marcus. Oh, look, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. And that was Marcus Champ. And if you would like to explore the wonderful world of macroeconomics with folk like Marcus, head over to modernmoneyaustralia.org, sign up to become a member and join in on their events. Yeah, and so another resource for MMT is the, uh, what was the name of the the podcast that uh, Patricia Pino and Christian Riley run? The That MMT Podcast. Ah. It's a great listen. And you can find them on Twitter at MMT Podcast. And, of course, don't forget our friends at the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, auwu.org.au. But uh, we're running out of time, yep. so we'll see you in a couple of weeks again, eh? See you, Kevin. Bye. Do, 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 do. <laughs> You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. And I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure... What, I had no no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. (laughs) Well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, I don't mind you having pleasure. It's great. Have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.